Today is Sunday, August 4th, 2019. We're going to move towards our sermon and its title, but there are a few announcements that I wanted you to hear while I have your full attention. Foundations is this Monday night. It's our last two sessions in the book of Samuel. I promise that you will want to make those. Tuesday, Pastor Wade and our Peru team come back from Peru. Man, do y'all want to see Pastor Wade? Wednesday, Elder Charlie and Caleb will be speaking from this pulpit. Thursday morning, Cody Schmidt becomes Cody Stevens officially at the Fort Bend Courthouse at 8 a.m. You are all invited. It's about time that the Stevens were in court for something we wanted to be in court for. And right now, as we speak, Sasha and Judah are in labor with Yoshev Abishai Stevens. We have a goal before us today, a target that the Lord is shooting at. This brings us to the title of our message. It is meant to follow up on the Family Banner series. It's meant to follow up on the Eregina's preaching about redefining the family line. Our message today is called A Thousand Generations. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis 6-9. I'm overwhelmed at the prophecies that happened today during worship. And I may or may not get into the book of Isaiah and explain more of them to you. Suffice it to say, as we start here in Genesis, the Lord is aiming at more than you realize. I'm going to teach you some things in the hope that you begin to expand your grasp of just how far the Lord is aiming at. It's said that the satellites that are orbiting our planet are capable of reading the text off of a quarter. That is myopic compared to what Christ can do in calling forth the end from the beginning, though. I promise you that when your children are being born, He has a plan for their children's children. That He is not thinking about your latest problem that has arisen from lack of finances, a lack of good attitude, or a lack of infilling with the Holy Ghost. What He is thinking about and has destined for you or the good works that He's prepared in advance for you to do, that if you do become the banner of your children's children's children, that become a supernatural standard over a family. Our God is a long-range archer, and He has picked His target. In Genesis 6-9, we see something that is extraordinary. I'm reading out of the ESV for the moment, which some say is the Eric Stevens version, but that is not true. I prefer the NIV. You hear me, Pastor Massey? I want to ask you a question. As we're reading this, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. What an incredible introduction to Noah. Who was Noah's pastor? Whose house could Noah go to and enjoy righteous fellowship? What covenant team did Noah have to help him stay on the straight and narrow? The answer to all of those things is he didn't. He didn't have any of those things. 
He had a dramatic experience with the Lord. But he did not have the benefits that you are surrounded with. If the book of Enoch is any kind of indicator, and I'm not relying on it alone, Matthew 24 mentions this, also Genesis 6 mentions this, Noah literally lived in a world of hurt. Somebody say world of hurt. Noah was surrounded by darkness, and yet he shined quite brightly. This reminds me of something the Apostle Paul said in the book of Philippians. I'm going to read it to you. You stay where you were at in Genesis. This is Philippians 2.14. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure. Do you hear that you become that? You are not born again and immediately in every way sanctified. You are born again and it is the beginning of a transformation. Arguing, complaining, it sets it back. If somebody addresses an issue in your life and your response is to complain about them or someone else, this only hurts you. God is aiming at something with your life. Make sure that arguing and complaining do not pull you off of course. Blameless and pure, children of God without fault, In a crooked and depraved generation. Come on, when they turn down the lights, the children of God shine brighter. Noah stands out in his generation. He's the only one of his generation. Do you think that he thought he was at a disadvantage? Or did it just make his righteous actions shine that much brighter? In which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. In order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for anything. If we give way to the decadence of our society around us, if we fail to become pure, we will not hit the target that God is aiming this ministry at. Why do you think he has given us more than 60 children under 10? Look around. We're overrun. We're outnumbered by children. And you heard a birth announcement today a due date in April, and we're having a child right now, one of my grandchildren, while I'm preaching. God is aiming at something. He wants to hit a target. Listen, when you think of LCM, when you think of Ihad to Peru, or One Light Ministries, any of the One Association churches, we've been advantaged in every way. We have each other. Noah didn't have a neighbor to go and say, hey man, you're in my jarhead covenant. I need your help making a decision. He didn't have that. We have the most visited missionaries I've ever heard of. The most well-supported missionaries I have ever heard of. We are closer to our brother churches than any association I've ever seen. We are advantaged in every way. Noah did more with less. And that's compelling. Think about it. His family banner still appears in the sky every time it rains. His family promise benefited the entire world. His family attitude was sufficiently strong to complete his supernatural mission. His curses and blessings were handled with strength and honor. Noah doesn't become a victim because he was wronged. His family seeded the world with the very elements of the gospel. Our target is that we would do the same. When God gives you children, when he gives you grandchildren, I want you to understand a very key biblical principle that we're going to explain in many ways. Hebrews literally declares 
that when Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, that the Levitical priesthood that were seeds inside of Abraham's body still tithed to Melchizedek. Do you know what that means? That means that the moment that Charlie Brown got born again, Elder Charlie Brown got born again, everything in his body, everything that would ever come from his body, everything that would ever come from what came from his body belongs to the Lord. He purchased it. When he purchased you, he purchased your progenitry as well. When he makes a covenant with you, that covenant is with your family line as well. God is willing to save as many as you will actually work to disciple. So we are going to aim at discipleship. I want to show you something about the first ten generations. When you look at these names, I understand saying Mahalalel, which I have to do in a broken kind of fashion. Or Methuselah. These might just seem like strange names to you. We don't get through the fifth chapter of the Bible before we have gone ten generations into humanity. Why would the biblical account do something like this? I want to remind you that Proverbs 25, 2, while you stay staring at this, says it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. Do you want to be kings or do you want to be paupers? Do you want to be kings? Jesus Christ is the king of... The way you make yourself a king is that you have the spirit of the king inside of you to search out the things that the king wants you to see, wants you to do. They become actionable items in your life. We do not just float through life like ordinary human beings because we are of a supernatural race now. The moment that Christ redeemed you, the moment He filled you with His kingly spirit, you became something more than natural. You became something supernatural. And God wants that supernatural seed to extend through the generations. Looking at these names is not a matter of cryptanalysis. The Word of God is not a cipher that you use a code-breaking computer to decode. It's an enigma to the lost, but it's not supposed to be an enigma to us. 1 Corinthians 2.16 says, For who has known the mind of the Lord that He may instruct Him? But we have the mind of Christ. Everything that Christ understands, the very revelation that God gave to Jesus Christ, He gives to us by possessing the mind of Christ. How do you think about your children's children's children, or do you? I have to confess, like most men, I spent my 20s thinking about what I was called to do. In my early 30s, I began wondering whether I had what it took to get it done. By my mid-30s, I realized I did not have what it took to get it done, what it takes to get it done. I began depending on the Lord more and on my arm less, asking God to form teams around me, men of Character and reputation, men that were better men than me, like Pastor Piro. As I've moved into my 40s, I've realized it's not about me at all. It's not even about the team that we formed. All we are is a bow that is meant to launch sons further than we could go. Our king is aiming at something that we are barely beginning to perceive. 
And once you start to get it, once it gets down in your soul a little bit, every moment of your day becomes significant. You won't have any more monotonous moments. Suddenly changing a diaper has a purpose. Suddenly teaching a child their Aleph Bet, Daleth Gimel has a purpose. God is aiming at something through the generations of our families. Some see ten difficult names. I think that the Holy Spirit is about to show us all that He's writing a story that it takes generations to write. A story that unfolds one life at a time. You know, for a generational story to unfold, one life has to become a family, though. That family then has to be focused on becoming a part of the nation of God or the story doesn't unfold. It turns out that the story of the king, his story, is literally written in our history. This is an example of it as we move to our next slide. Adam's name is simply man. Seth's name is granted, appointed, compensated. Enosh's name means mortality. Kenan's name means possessor or purchaser. Mahalalel, the praise or blessed of God or God shines forth. Jared, coming down or descending. Enoch, initiating, teaching, dedicating. Methuselah, his death brings or sins. Lamech, strong, vigorous or powerful. And of course, Noah, comfort, rest or peace. When you look at this slide, understand that from Adam to Noah is ten generations. Can you name your great-great-great-grandfather? You know, I was with Justin Linton, who I don't mind saying is one of my favorites. I think we were at a border crossing in Russia. Was it Russia or Egypt? Israel. Oh, we were going from Egypt back into Israel. And they asked for his grandfather's name. And he made a joke that accused them of slight racism. (laughs) The Bible goes through great lengths to record the generational history precisely so that you could look at this and go, wow, man or mankind was granted, appointed, or compensated with mortality by his purchaser and possessor. The praise of God, the blessed of God, who shines forth. He comes down and descends. He initiates and teaches. He dedicates something by his death, which brings or sends a strong, powerful comfort, rest, and peace. When you're looking at something like that, that is nothing more than the Hebrew definition of ten names. You have to ask yourself, which one of the ancient rabbis had a motive to manipulate this text so as to incorporate the message of Christianity? None. Of course, that's a silly idea. Well, if they didn't do it, then God put it here. What would happen if you remove Kenan from the story or Methuselah or Noah? What would happen if they were removed from the story? You see, Kenan means possessor or purchaser. When you look at Methuselah, his death brings or sins. Noah, comfort, rest, or peace. What happens if you remove them from the generations? Well, without Kenan, the story isn't appropriately focused on God. Without Methuselah, the story isn't appropriately focused on the cross. Without Noah, the story isn't appropriately focused on the baptism in the Holy Ghost. 
In other words, eliminating the generational testimony at key points would warp the gospel into what is being popularly preached all over the world today, but most especially in this country. Every generation has a part to play. And they build upon each other. They further a story of God on earth. They further the kingdom of God on earth. This doesn't happen by mistake. It's a very intentional design. It requires men of God to understand who they are so that they can give birth according to their kind. It requires men of God to take seriously the call and commission of God and their highest priority being that their children do so that God's work can advance. I don't think there's a thing in the world wrong with a doctor. I'm trying to say doctor and lawyer, but I'm choking a little bit on it coming out. I don't think there's a thing wrong in the world with being an engineer. But our highest aim in life has got to be that we fulfill God's work in our own life, not that we use any other thing as a mask for our own ambitions apart from God's kingdom. Parents, you need to take this very seriously. Because parents all across, not just our church, but our country, think that it is noble to aim their children at something that God never aimed them at, and then they stand as an obstacle in the way of their children achieving God's purpose for their life. God is aiming at something better than that here. He's aiming at mothers and fathers that understand the purpose of their children and grandchildren, and they set them on better footing so that they can hit the high call of God on their life. I want to show you my references so you don't think I made this up. You won't be able to read them, but they will be available for you online. Every single definition has its source right there. So you see, it's not gerrymandered. It's it's not rigged. It is something that God put into the text that is being done for your benefit. Let us camp back on Noah for a minute. He was not corrupt in a corrupt generation. Man, we have to learn from that. If you're waiting for the world to get better around you, to give you a better leg up, if you're waiting for your circumstances to change before your character does, you have not learned the lesson that was passed down through the generations. Your character must be improved by your bad circumstances so that you then can be the catalyst for change in your circumstances. As long as we are blaming anything other than our own character, It's very hard to grow. But when you look at your circumstances, if you realize that you must change to be the change in the world that you want, that is gold. With 60 children under the age of 10 in this church, what we do over the next decade is going to echo through the centuries. Uh, That's not just a preacher's bullet point. I want you... I want you to get that for a second. So I'm going to chase a rabbit. Get to Isaiah 43. I'm going to do this quickly, but I want you to understand the extent to which God aims at things that are hard to perceive in the moment. Isaiah 43.10 You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me. And understand that I am He. By the way, anytime you see the phrase, I am He, it is a divine way to refer to God. Before me, no God was formed, 
nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord. Apart from me, there is no Savior. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed, I am not some foreign God around you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Yes, from ancient of days, I am He. No one can deliver out of my hand. When I act, who can reverse it? Listen, He chose the people that He redeemed to be witnesses that He calls the target in advance. When you're thinking of calling the target in advance, it's very hard not to flip a page in your Bible and be in Isaiah 44. Look at verse 24. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, who formed you where? I am the Lord who has made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who foils the signs of false prophets and make fools of diviners, who overthrows the learning of the wise and turns it into nonsense, who carries out the words of his servants and fulfills the predictions of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited. Of the towns of Judah, they shall be built. And of their ruins, I will restore them. Who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your streams. Look at verse 28. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. When the Lord says this, it is a couple hundred years before Cyrus is even born. The people that God says would be his witnesses were not alive at the time that he was born. He expected the witness to carry on from the fathers and mothers to their children and to their grandchildren so that they would know our whole family in the time of Isaiah received this promise. Somebody named Cyrus is coming. And they were witnesses that it was declared in advance so that when it happened, everybody would know the Lord is God. We think of Isaiah as being the witness, but this is Isaiah speaking to his people saying, you are the witness. You know how ironic it is today that people say this must be a reverse engineered text? That's the academic position. This had to be written after the time period of Cyrus because there's no way that Isaiah could have named Cyrus in advance. That's because we don't understand God's aim. God said something to one generation that he accomplishes through many generations. He's actually aiming much further than you ever thought that he could. With that in mind, I would like you to go to Exodus 20. In Exodus 20... Beginning in verse 5. This is right in the middle of the Ten Commandments. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Speaking about idolatry. The Lord your God, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation of those that hate me. What you do affects the generations coming after you. You have to ask yourself a very basic question before we finish this sentence. Does God want you to hate Him? Was it ever God's design for you to hate Him? Did God ever plan for you to hate Him? 
then he never planned to negatively affect three or four generations because of your behavior. It's the result of your behavior, not the result of God. Look at how he finishes the verse because it is God's intent. But showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. God's will for your life is that you make such a mark that your transformation is so dramatic, that your discipleship is so excellent, that what He invests in you lasts literally for a thousand generations. That's become kind of a phrase for us. Like a thousand generations. I I don't think you understand how mind-boggling that statement is. Do you know how many generations exist in the Bible between Adam and Jesus the Christ? Roughly 77 generations. That was a period of more than 4,000 years. We are roughly 2,000 years past that period. How long will it take to get to 1,000 generations? He expects what He put in you that is eternal to carry through you forever and ever and ever. Discipleship of our children is not an afterthought for Sunday school. Praying over our children before they go to a time of mentoring... This is not just a polite platitude. It is what we are aiming at because it's what God is aiming at. As I stand here and speak right now, the Lord is building my family line. Do you know that as a father I was concerned taking my son out of school? Man, how will he ever meet anyone? Carrying him around the world, how will he ever participate in all of the other carnal activities that everyone thinks are so important like athletics? homeschooling him. How will he enter into a decent college so he can have a decent career? How will he ever meet a spouse if he's never in one place long enough to have a peer group? But the Lord was aiming at something. Something that I couldn't perceive of yet. I had no idea that there was another family that he had redefined their line that I hadn't even met yet. That he had destined would run into us at a key moment in our life. The Ereginas and the Stevens were a godly merger that neither of us could have ever anticipated. And now there are three Stevens boys through one Eregina girl. You don't know what God is aiming at. What if what we're doing right now has very little to do with your next mortgage payment? Very little to do with whether or not you feel fulfilled from witnessing enough. And everything to do with what your children's children's children will be doing. Are you properly weighting your target like God's target? Say, ah, well, I'm saving for them. I'm saving for their future. How about you spend yourself for them now instead of waiting till the future? See, spending yourself for them now, that will form them. What is wrong with us? The biggest houses we ever buy is after everybody leaves. We accumulate the most when we need the least. What is wrong with us? You know what we need to do? is distribute all, every day, at all times, to those that are going to carry what God gave us further than our own lifetime will go. You're going to meet Raja Israel. I love Raja and he became a father to me because he was the fifth generation in his family. And when he achieved much, 
He sold all to make sure that the sixth generation of his family went further in ministry than he did. He sold his wife's jewelry. He sold the clothes on their backs to establish his son in ministry. Now his son has had a son. Raja is a grandfather who is the seventh. And I, I, all I can think is it's the salvation of all of India. Deuteronomy 29, 29 is a profound truth. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things revealed, somebody say revealed, belong to us and to our children forever, forever, that we may follow the words of this law. This quite literally means that when God gives Keith Phillips something, it now belongs to Keith, but not Keith alone. It also belongs to his children's children's children. Well, how will they get it if he doesn't give it? You think that passing your child an inheritance is what is important? And you're right, but you're wrong about what kind of inheritance. I'm penniless and happy as could be. Every once in a while I say something like that and somebody comes up with a crumpled up hundred dollar bill and they feel like they're really going to do something for me and they don't recognize which one of us is poor. I'm not poor. I'm penniless and so far from poor. I'm rich in making many rich. The proof of that is what is carrying through the lines. I would never trade something temporal for something eternal. That's bowl of beans mentality, and God knows I hate beans. I want to show you 30 generations. These 30 generations are an incredible teaching all in of themselves. But we're 29 minutes into a message, and a baby is being born. In Genesis 5, what we see is from Adam to Noah, the first 10 generations... Adam started the human race. What did Noah do? Redeemed it. God is so interested in generations that when he starts to see it go astray, he intervenes. Generation 20, I'm sorry, generation 11 to 20, Shem to Abraham. Shem starts the Semitic peoples. Abraham is their redemption. Generation 20 to 30, Isaac to Boaz. That's more complicated than I have time for. But Isaac's descendants through Judah had an illegal marriage. Judah ends up conceiving a child with Tamar. It's a complicated story. He ends up saying to her, you are more righteous than I. And it was true. Their child is illegitimate because it was not birthed in the way that God designed childhood to happen. There is a prohibition against those kind of births being included in the family line until the 10th generation. In the 10th generation, Boaz redeemed what went astray in Isaac's generations. God will work beyond your ability. He will use you to start something, another man to redeem it, but He works through your family line. It needs to be redefined in your time so that you set others on good footing. It begs a question. As you reflect on that, what would have happened if they never went astray? 
What would happen if, if by the tenth generation it didn't have to be redone again? Look, let's leave that on the screen for a minute and let's talk for just a second about a foundational principle in the Bible that is missed because it's not in your four spiritual laws. It's, it's not in your sinner's prayer. It's, it's not in the greasy grace, sloppy agape, decisionism kind of Christianity that the world has hoard itself out to. It's foundational to the Bible. And it's nowhere found in anyone's theology. Something is wrong and we're fixing it today. Genesis 17 in verse 3. Abram, somebody say Abram. Abram. Fell face down. And God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. Somebody say, with you. with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you. And kings will come from you. You know, those first six verses, we tend to not have a problem with. I'm not suggesting everybody understands it. I'm suggesting nobody has a problem with it even if they don't understand it. In verse 7 though, something else is said to Abraham that is underemphasized. It's under attack in our time. I am as pro-Israeli as they come. And yet that is not even my point here. My point is how this relates to you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me, say me, me. and you. You would think then that it's a two-party covenant. Abraham and Abraham's God. There's another and here. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. To be your God and the God of your descendants after you. When God saved Daniel Smith, He was saving everyone that would ever come through Daniel Smith. But it requires Daniel Smith to do God's work on earth for it to happen. See, you were saved for a purpose. And it was not just your salvation. God intended that the moment that He brought Asad Robinson into the faith, that everyone that would ever come through His body would be in the faith. See... It's not our job to make sure that our children are healthy, wealthy, and financially secure. It is not our job to make sure that they are well-liked and well-received. It is our job to make sure they have a family line worth continuing. It is our job to make sure that they are capable of continuing it. You know, Fox News, two days ago, an economist was speaking... And he was quoting a study and what it's doing to investments. The millennial generation is the largest living generation right now. By definition, they're 18 or older right now. 46% of the millennial generation, 46% require and are receiving help from their parents For daily living necessities. We're not even raising generations that can support themselves. Daily living necessities were defined as things like electric bill, food, 
gas, cell phone, car insurance. 46% of those over 18 in the millennial generation cannot even support their daily necessities. You know what that tells me? My generation and the generation before me have failed. But I don't intend to fail. And God's word's not going to fail. And if you find yourself in that 46%, how about you trust God to make up the difference? How, how about you trust the living God will be your God just like He's your daddy's God, just like He's your mother's God, just like He was your grandfather's God? You know who we have some sympathy for, though? If granddaddy and daddy were not in covenant with God, then how could you know any better? And that's why you have fathers in the faith. The Lord is able. His arm is not too short. And I'm not talking about just providing for yourself. I'm talking about stirring up something righteous in you. Overflowing with a Holy Ghost in a way that blesses the world around you. Everybody's got to start somewhere. But nobody should stay where you've started. If you're living beneath your holy potential. Stand up. Rise up. Get up in the faith. It's time God's aiming at something. I'm not beating on people that are not making it. I've been many times not making it. The family of God has helped me more times than I can count. That is who my family is. And what I am saying is God is big enough to provide something spiritually through you that cannot be extinguished from the earth in a thousand generations. you got to believe it. you got to grab hold of it. You have to fight for it. I would read the rest of Genesis 17, but I think you get the point. He says over and over again, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. God invests in one generation to accomplish something through the generations. Looking back at this 30 generation slide, if God starts something and by the 10th generation he's redeeming it, what would have happened if they had remained true? What would Noah look like if Adam had not fallen? Well, the world will never know. But it is an interesting thought, isn't it? If redemption hadn't come, then there would be no hope. But it did. What if what was done in your life, in your generation, was not lost but maintained for a thousand generations? I want to show you another slide. This one is the word toldot. I've been saying toldot for a long time and Ohad corrected me today. Toldot. Toldot is the word generation. There's more than one generation word for generation in the Bible, but this is its first seven occurrences. You think God's not interested in redemption generationally? The first time it occurs is in Genesis 2-4, talking about the generations of the earth when he put man on it. The second time that it occurs is when man has fallen. A generation started, a generation fallen. In Genesis 6-9, it's about a man who is redeeming generations, Noah. In Genesis 10, it's about the nations that are lost, the account of the lost nations. To get to Genesis 11, where we have the account of the Semitic peoples that he is redeeming. From there, what we see is Genesis 25. It's used about Isaac and Ishmael and the one family that he's going to use to bless the whole earth. In Genesis 36 and 37, it's used again about Israel spoken of as a nation that is going to bring global salvation. 
The study of generations in the Bible will show you that when God starts with the man Abraham, he's actually aimed at the whole world. And that it depends on Abraham raising up a child, Isaac, that is more capable than him. And that Isaac would raise up a child, Jacob, that is more capable than Isaac. That it would grow exponentially through the generations and not diminish. Think about how pathetic it is to be reverencing somebody that was born in the 1400s as the greatest man that your Christian faith has ever seen. That's backwards. That's decaying. And many of the pastors show that in their lives. Israel has gone through some rough trials. But the family banner of Israel has lasted through the generations. There were approximately 77 generations from Adam to Jesus. We are reading the story because Israel did not lose what God gave them. Do you get that? That what God began in the table of nations in Genesis 10 has not been lost to this day. You are holding their banner, their book in your lap and being blessed by it. How seriously are you transmitting what you've received? Oh, pastor, I got such a great blessing. I I got a prophecy at the bonfire in January. Amen. Middle of the year, and you don't remember it. How big a blessing was it? Pastor, God showed me this in the Word. And three weeks later, you cannot enumerate what it was. Now that's just you. Can your children? Can their children? Is what God is investing in you showing up in them? See, that's everything. That's what we have to aim at. So many of you are aiming at ministry, and I am so proud of that. That's all I've ever done is raise up ministers. But if you're not a minister in your own home, you are not fit to suffer the rest of us. It has to start with your family. It has to. I believe that so strongly, I looked right at some of the most cold single young men I've ever known and said, you need to take the singles class. We're not going anywhere with you two until you get married. Guess who got married this year? Pastoring, ministering, it starts in your home. Tell me what a champion you are abroad and I'm going to ask whether you're a hero in your own house. I'm not saying that to beat up on you. I'm telling you that the way to be a hero in your home and a champion abroad is to start with your own family. He's given us 60 of them that are under 10. What we do in the next decade has the ability to shape the world. Look, I come from the most ignoble, possible, goat-worshipping, redneck, El Camino-driving, back. Tire twice the width of the front tire, paper bag holding, wine sipping kind of people that there are. But I was born of heaven and everything changed. My family line does not look like the pathetic rednecks that came before us. And we even went back and got a few of them that were born of heaven too. And you know it because they start to love everybody. 2 Timothy 1.14 Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Come on, man. Something's been entrusted to you. What are you doing with what was entrusted to you? Do you know that you got to guard it? You have to guard it. 
2 Timothy 1.14 says, Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. How many of you thought the good deposit was the Holy Spirit? No. What you've been given, the revelation you've been given, the understanding from heaven you've been given, the Holy Spirit in you helps to guard that. The Holy Spirit doesn't need to be guarded from anything. He is the preeminent apex predator. You don't believe it. Watch a child get filled with the Holy Ghost and demons run in every direction. Do you have something worth guarding? Or your possessions? The sum total of your life. See, if you are receiving something from the heavens and you treasure it appropriately... Man, Arius family is as beautiful as a family as you could possibly see. I had lunch with Gabriel this week. He blessed every part of my day. We have a friendship that is growing. You know what Gabriel's real inheritance is? What he and Carolyn are giving to those two girls. Those two girls are not going to grow up as ordinary girls. And whoever they end up married to, who better be some on fire human being or you'll see Gabriel doing jujitsu like the homeland. <laughs> they will have something to contribute and I don't mean a dowry. I mean they will have something of worth that will last generations. That's what we're aiming at. See, we're not just meeting here today so that you can perform a religious service and we can move on. God's got something He's aiming at. Man, the last few weeks, every time I walk into church, I can't help but notice how pretty Gabrielle Brown is. She got a new bounce in her step. She's, she's spry. I said, Gabby, what's changed? She really couldn't say much. But she is changing. Can I tell you that's the most effective way to change your circumstances? It's for you to change in the circumstances. God has a plan for Gabrielle's life. He's aiming at something in her life. There's not one of you that's forgotten, not one of you that's left behind. But it requires us to trust the archer. It requires us to trust the target. It requires us to acquire a target. You can't walk through life aimlessly. You can't walk through life selfishly. You are going to have to learn to lose your life that you might find it. 2 Timothy 2, 2 says, And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. Don't go look for men outside your house if you haven't raised any inside your house. If you haven't found a reliable man inside your house, you got no business going outside your house. So wait a minute, Eric. We don't all have sons. We, we don't all have children. Oh, I'm not talking about just natural children. If you are not discipling people daily in your own life, you don't have anything to entrust to anybody. But if you are receiving from heaven and sharing it with the people that are around you, you know what's amazing? You don't have to go to Africa. You don't have to go to the Netherlands. You don't have to go to Antarctica. You don't have to go to Australia, although it'd be nice. You just have to do what God has put before you and trust that He has a target you don't see. See, we have dreams that are grandiose. They're usually 
like Star Wars, galaxy far, far away, a long time from now. But it actually starts with what you're doing now in the simplest ways in your own home. You are all capable of hitting this target. Every one of you. There's a relatively minor few in here that we're going to overwhelm with love, overwhelm with the power of the Spirit, who don't really like God. And that's okay. He loves you, and you've got time. God will let you waver like an immature brat between two opinions for a while. He'll spank you enough that you'll hug his leg. And if you don't, well, then there's an eternal judgment. But that's not what he desires, not for anybody, even though there's a few in this room like that. We're going to work at this and work at this until every human being in this room is aimed at what God is aimed at in their life. Ministry can't get done outside your family if it's not done inside your family. Your ministry starts in the generations of your family line. I want to show you a family line real quick. When you see these 12 tribes, it's easy to just read off their order and see that you know them. Looking at the circumstances that they appear in, understand in the Bible, this same list of 12 becomes a baker's dozen. Because Joseph's children are considered uh, Jacob's sons, each of them appears in the list sometimes. I have found 23 different listings of the tribes of Israel. You wouldn't think that, huh? Meaning that the order is slightly different each time, and we only have 13 really to work with, but they're mixed up. And every time you mix it up, the story that it tells fits the circumstance. I don't have time to go through that. I just thought I would do their birth order for you. That's our next slide. When Reuben's mama says, the Lord has seen my misery, she named him Reuben, which means behold the son. Simeon, one who hears. Levi, joining. Judah, praise the Lord. When Dan's mama knew that she was having a child, she said, the Lord has listened to my plea and named Dan judgment or vindication. Naphtali, struggle. Gad, favor. Fortune, troops. Asher, happy. Issachar, reward. Zebulun, precious gift or dwelling place. Joseph, he adds... And Benjamin, son of my right hand. Put them together. The Lord has seen my misery. Behold, a son. One who hears is joining. Praise the Lord. Vindication in the struggle. Favor, fortune, and troops. A happy reward. A precious gift. A dwelling place. He has added the son of the right hand. Tell me that that is not speaking about Jesus the Christ. So I ask you all of the same questions before. Which one of the ancient sages wanted to work the message of Christianity into this? See, there is no division between Judaism and Christianity. Judaism is completed in the faith by a Jewish Messiah. When you look at something like this, what happens if Benjamin had been lo ami? He adds the son of my misery. See, your actions can try to change the story that God wants to paint. Praise God, he's bigger than your actions if you trust him. The mama wanted to name the child Lo-Ami. The father said, no, his name will be Ben-Yamin. Which one did God want? See, I'm trying to encourage you that you don't have to be scared that you'll make a, a, a mistake you didn't mean to. God will be bigger than that. He will work through it for you. And yet you have to aim at what he wants. She gave her life to produce this child. The difficulties in your family that you overcome by the grace of God, they tell a story. The Spirit is writing the story of your family line. 
Are you staying in step with the author? Isn't that worth asking? Do you wake up? Galatians 5.25 says, Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep step with the Spirit. Do you hear from God for a prophecy in church, but no other time during the week? See, to, to have the Lord effectively work through your family line, to hit the target that we're looking at, which I believe is a thousand generations, requires you to take step after step in the Spirit. Not a step a week. God's not a two-step country music guy. He, he actually wants you to walk in the Spirit. And Hebrew says, run in the Spirit. See, He wants motion of faith. Are you teaching your family line to do that? Because now is the time to start. God has told us this would be a prosperous year. And what He meant by prosperous was salvations, the birth of children, spiritual experiences, and man, have we been having them. We have to aim at the right things. You know, it's an age-old story that a father builds a business and he's disappointed in his son who doesn't want to take it over. Was that the son's fault or the father's, you think? Hey, I want to show you my references for this. Right here is every Bible dictionary that defined every name. You can have that. You can take pictures. It'll be online. I want you to know I don't make these things up nor do I download them from Google. These are things that came straight from my study. And they can be trusted. Tested and approved like a pellis. How we handle the discipleship of our children will ultimately determine the effectiveness of our lives for the Lord. Let me say that for you again. How you handle the blessing that God is giving this church... Each one, each one of your families, how Spencer disciples Riley will determine whether Spencer is a success or a failure. How Ibrahim handles Yosef will determine whether in God's eyes, Ibrahim is a success or a failure. In this season of prosperity, and man, is it prosperous with children, we have to take aim at the right thing. That is not a punishing word. That is an enlivening word. Listen, Ibrahim does not have to be Donald Trump. (laughs) Ibrahim does not have to be a real estate mogul. I mean, he really doesn't. He's a talented young man. He's doing well in sales. People like him. He's honest. He's godly. And I think it's a good idea to buy a house from Ibrahim. But that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying he only does that so that he has the opportunity to eat, sleep, wake up, and raise Yusuf. The job is not the goal. The child is the goal. I'm here to tell you that Tom and Martha very well, well may do a great job renovating houses, building roofs, doing extraordinary. And I'm thankful we need honest craftsmen. But that's not their real value to the kingdom. The real value to the kingdom is what they can build in your life. Look, this happens with our children when they're young. It happens, we become prophets in their life when they're older. And it happens with spiritual children that God gives us at every stage of life. There should never be a time that we're not bearing fruit. There should never be a time that we're not aiming at God's target. There's a psalm of ascent. And I believe you could take the psalm of ascent in more ways than one. I believe it's a song for ascending to Jerusalem, but it's a song of ascent to a higher target than you may be aiming for. 
Elder Charlie and Caleb preached an entire message about this that was extraordinary. They concluded that a father starts a house and a son finishes the house. I want to read with you Psalm 127. Please put that on the screen. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. In vain you rise up early and stay up late. Toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. That could almost be depressing. Especially if you have a house that you know the Lord didn't build. Understand that the house is a euphemism for a family line. It's not just the physical structure, although it can be true of both. Sons are a heritage from the Lord. Children a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are sons born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their enemies at the gate. Get this. The Lord is at war. We are to be aimed at what the Lord is aimed at. Do you know how you take aim? Through your natural and your spiritual children. According to verse 4, they are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. What God is investing in you was meant to go further, faster, and with a greater impact in your children. It's everything. This is the exact opposite of the way that the world builds. A young man grows up hoping that he's as strong as his dad, as wise as his dad. He admires his dad. This shows up in rebellious teenage behavior by pretending you don't like anything about your dad because you're secretly scared you don't measure up to it. But the truth is, is the little boy wants to wrestle with his father. A little boy wants to arm wrestle with his I could not so much as watch Judah work out a little bit as a teenager before he's like, uh, would you lift, dad? I never knew whether to tell him the truth or not. He eventually exceeded all of the numbers and then I could tell him the truth. Every father and every son, you're not sure how this is going to work. The son wants to live up to his father's accomplishments. Fathers, you need the kind of accomplishments that they should be aiming for. And every father hopes that his son will grow into that. It's in your hands. The things we're talking about, they're, they're not slam dunking a basketball. That is such a miserably low expectation for a human being. They're not becoming a professional baseball player. Again, what a miserable, low expectation for a human being. They are burying the word in your heart. Having a spirit of Elijah. Never wavering between two opinions. All out assault on the gates of hell until we prevail with our God. That your children can do. Have you set the right target? Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians 3 that everybody should be careful how he builds. He says that your work will be shown for what it is. What if he was not talking about something that you go do for the Lord like college ministry, youth ministry, some event? What if what he was talking about was your children? See, your children are the costly, precious stones. Spiritually and naturally, your children become a crown for you. The same passage goes on to say you are God's temple. That's a really interesting thing since God's temple is pictured in the book of Revelation as being comprised of precious things. Are you building the body of Christ by building your children? Are you 
still falling back on that weird denominational apathy. They say, I don't know, I tried to bring them to church. How many of you claim to be raised in Christian homes, but when it comes down to it, you weren't aimed at anything that was seriously godly. You were just raised in a moral fashion that agreed with Romans 10, 9, and 10. See, that's almost everybody I meet. So when you come meet us, you say that you're rededicated. And a few years later, you find out you were born again. It's because you don't even know what Christianity is until you aim at the right thing. Man, that's almost everybody that I meet. It's difficult to pretend long enough for you to get the revelation of what's happening to you. Mom and dad really love the Lord. Really, it doesn't show at all. Well, they said they love Jesus. They have a Bible. Yeah, Mormons got them too. Jehovah's Witness got them too. In fact, all of our presidential candidates at some point will probably quote it if they think it serves them, but they won't do it. I'd like to talk to you about towers and temples because I'm running out of time. Is that okay if we hurry to towers and temples? Towers. Think, I don't know, Trump Tower. Think Twin Towers. Think Eiffel Tower. I don't know, the one in Kuala Lumpur. I, I Think any tower you want to think. I want to contrast that with something. Let's go to our next slide. This is an artist's rendition, what's on the left of your screen, of the Tower of Babel. It has an earthly base that's large to support the next successive layer, which is, of course, smaller. That makes sense, right? We have some engineers in the room. The wide base allows you to build inside of that and still go up, right? I mean, that's, that's pretty cool. It's not cool when we're talking about building people, though. Every generation has to live then within the borders of the previous, producing an ever-simplifying structure that rises quickly and ultimately is for one heavenly superstar at the top. We can even buy him a jet and call him a great man of God for being a giant donkey. The majority of Revelation in this kind of structure is old. But hey, it's okay because after all, look, we're rising to greatness. The people are spiritual simpletons. But there are a few exceptional leaders who impress us with a simplified truth at every level. Eventually, we elevate and narrow to the one great man. It's a kind of Messiah complex that we could call an anti-Messiah complex or an anti-Christ model. It's selfish, it's exalting, it's expensive, it's exclusive, and it's earthly. This is how almost every megachurch ever has been built. Right here. Its justification is the great number of people there. And the great majority of them are nowhere near as great as the one great leader. That is not what we're aiming at. We're aiming at turning that tower upside down. We're aiming at something entirely different. The image on the right turns this on its head literally. The beginning level is the smallest. But at every level that comes after it, it's expected to outgrow what came before it. The greatest who came first are in fact the least. But their work allowed for the growth that followed their lives. Upward growth is sacrificial. It's spiritual. It's slow and it can only be sent from heaven. Every generation has more revelation than the previous and is expected to do more for the advancement of the generation to follow them. What we're advocating for is selfless, humble, inclusive, and heavenly based. And it starts with you. 
and what you're aimed at. What do you want for your family line? What do you want for the family sitting on the left and right of you? Do you want to build a tower or a temple? All around us, we're recreating the Tower of Babel. It's everywhere. I want to build the temple of God. Do you know that there's a temple in the scripture that's mentioned that's never been built? Anybody? A temple named in the scripture, dimensions given, and it's never existed on earth. That's interesting. Go with me to Ezekiel. Actually, don't. We're, uh, I'll put them on the screen. Let's put that next slide up. <laughs> wow, that's very small. Okay, you probably want to... I'll read this to you. Ezekiel 41, 7. This is from the Nazbi. The side chambers. This is a description of a temple that has never been built, but it, the, the design is by God. We're talking about the housing for the priest inside the temple in this verse. The side chambers surrounding the temple were wider at each successive story because the structure surrounding the temple went upward by stages on all sides of the temple. Therefore, the width of the temple increased as it went higher. Are you hearing that? That's not a normal architectural design. That's something that would have to come from heaven. By the way, unless you think it's a translation issue... Complete Jewish Bible is the middle verse. Thus, the width of the side rooms plus the passageways increased as one went up from floor to floor. It increased as it went higher. You want to see it in um, the 1984 NIV. The side rooms all around the temple were wider at each successive level. The structure surrounding the temple was built in ascending stages so that the rooms widened as they went upward. The way that man builds is safe. It's based in the earth. And it only gets higher as it gets smaller. The way that God builds stacks on top of a shoulders like, uh, like Peyton Parsons. And he builds outward and upward from there and on top of those shoulders. Outward and upward from there so that you can look back and go, Wow, the greatest among us was actually the, the least. He started something that we have continued. We are reaping where we have not sown. God has multiplied things in our lives. Are you going to hand something to the generations to come? I, I just can't hurry through this part. I have something very good for you. I'm waiting to see my grandson right now. But I'm not going to cheat you this word. Turn to 1 Chronicles 22.5. We're an hour and five minutes in. In the next ten minutes, I will wrap this up. I could preach for another three hours on this subject, but that's why we do series. Pastor Wade and Pastor Matthew, Charlie and um, Caleb, we, John and uh, Sarah, Matt and Natalie. So many people will be speaking about this subject they will pick up all the pieces that I have failed to. If I can make one impression on you, we're at that place. First Chronicles 22.5, David said, My son Solomon is young and inexperienced. If you are a young man in the room and your dad or maybe your father-in-law thinks you don't know anything, that is very biblical. It's always been that way. And if they're going to say you're young and inexperienced, we can live with that part of the biblical prophecy if they have the chutzpah to fulfill the second part of it. David said, my son Solomon is young and experienced. 
And the house to be built for the Lord should be of great magnificence. (laughs) Magnificence. And fame and splendor in the sight of all the nations. Therefore, I will make preparations for it. So David made extensive preparations before his death. Then he called for his son Solomon and charged him to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. It's okay for your father-in-law to say you're young and inexperienced if what he wants to do is give you the preparations for everything that God wants to accomplish through your life and pray for you. Other than that, he should shut up. That felt good. Such an interesting thing to say. That the house to be built for the Lord should be of great magnificence. That's mayal gadol. When you look at those words, you couldn't be any more blessed by them. Mayal means upward, high, above, over. It expresses the idea of on top of something. A level built on top of a previous level. Gadol, magnify, grow, greater. If you want to talk to Nick about this, he'll give you the paleo for it. And it's incredible. What David is actually saying is the house that my son is supposed to build is going to be upward, high, above, over. Anything else that's ever come before it, it will magnify, grow, and be greater than anything that had ever come before it. That's how God wants to build. You take something and invest it in your son. And he takes it. And he lifts it upward. He grows it to be greater. It becomes more expansive as it rises higher. He gives it to his son who does the same thing. That's the exact opposite of camping on Martin Luther's theology and never outgrowing it. That's the exact opposite of hanging out around John Calvin's theology and never outgrowing it. That's becoming smaller in every generation. You say, oh, well, they were great men. That's the problem is you don't compare to them at all and you were supposed to outgrow them. I don't have a problem talking to Calvin about uh, five points of Calvinism because he at least understands what he's talking about, but his followers don't. I, don't, I wouldn't have a problem talking to Luther about salvation by grace. The problem is, is that the panty-waisted preachers in the Lutheran church today aren't saved and they don't know what grace is. The problem's not with the original man. The problem is with the ever-simplified version that came after them in every generation until we raised up something that was great and tall and that God will knock down. What we're supposed to be aiming at is generations that go further and do better and their character is deeper and they are more holy. I want to show you a picture and see if we can get the idea. This is another word for generation called door. The idea here is Door imply, it comes from a root that has to do with circular, a pile, a heap, even a ball. When you look at a tree, its greatness is not its outer shape. The outer shape often, if you think of a Christmas tree, the top is more narrow. But how did it get there? You take a cross section of the tree and you can see it. What we see in that small circle is the core of the tree. It's the smallest of the rings, but it's where all of the strength came from. And every year it grew, it grew another ring outside of that one that was both larger and went further. And every year, so that the great circumference of the tree is actually its youngest generation. It's what came last. 
That's what we're supposed to be doing. God birthed man into a world surrounded by this. When we got here, there were already seed-bearing plants of every kind. When man was made, it was already there. Has you ever looked at an apple tree with no apples on it and said, my God, that's a good-looking apple tree? No, what is the crown of the apple tree? What is its glory? What it produces in every single apple has more seeds in it than the one tree that it came from. See, we're supposed to grow outward and upward. We're supposed to produce something better than we are. And that has to be our aim. And you aim too low when you want to do this in a worldly fashion. If you will seek first the kingdom, what will be added to you? This cannot be a platitude. It has to be an actual life practice. I'm telling you how to make sure that your children are successful. I'm telling you how to hit what God is aiming at. Kingdom comes first in every way in their life. Not YouTube. Not an iPad. Not an Xbox. Not any other ignoble thing. Kingdom first. Now, moms, dads, you got to be really honest here. They're going to be like you before they outgrow you. Is the life that you're showing them worth Christ dying for? Is it? Because if your walk is miserable, you're harming your children. You're supposed to be benefiting them, making preparations for their walk. Do your children see you struggle and overcome? Or have they watched a lifetime of you being overcome? Well, we always tried our best. I could care less what you're trying to do. I'm asking what you are doing. That try thing that you say, that's just an excuse. It's an excuse to say the, stay the same way that you've always been. No change, no growth, no character, and blame it on your circumstance. I'm suggesting that the Lord is giving us a new aim today. A new high bar to hit. You know, Jesus said that if the tree doesn't die... If the seed doesn't fall to the ground, it won't produce many seeds. Do you have something that needs to die today? You have a hobby, a passion. Do you have something that's stealing from what you should be investing in? Is your life outward focused, starting with your family and then moving outward from there? Is it truly outward focused? Are you a selfish individual trying to add Christianity to your selfish life? It shows up with, you know, bless me, bless me, bless me. Really, is that the prayer of a Christian? That's the prayer of prosperity pimps. That is not the the prayer of a Christian. A Christian is about bless them. Show me how to help them. How can I reach outward to them? How can I make them great? How can I wash their feet? It's so easy to see the immature among us. They're only concerned with themselves. The mature among us are concerned with those that are around them. You can do your own survey of Deuteronomy. I don't have time to do it. Impress these on your children. When you sit, when you walk, when you talk, everything that God did for Israel was about what the fathers and mothers impressed on the children. When your children ask you, tell them. It was always about the investment in the children. In fact, when the parents failed, He killed all of them in a desert and raised up their children instead. Proverbs 17, 6 says, Children's children are a crown to the aged, and parents are the pride of their children. What is our real crown? 
well, all of my children are professionals. Yeah, you're a professional carnal person. I can see that. How could you brag about that? How about all of your children are on fire for the Lord? Then I don't care what they do for a living. I have a daughter who's a plastic surgeon and I have a son who's as big a jerk as I am. Good for you. Really, when we stand in eternity, you think taking wrinkled old ladies and making them stretch-faced old ladies is, uh, is going to be meritorious? We should just get down to it. Are you overcome with the idolatry of the love of money so much that you want to poison your children with it? Are you going to seek the kingdom with all of your heart and show them how to do that? In my life, I've been everything from an ice machine salesman to financial analyst to mortgage investment. You know why? Those were places I collected a paycheck. I was actually working for God. I've never worked at a place where people didn't get spirit-filled and saved. Never. Not, even a Mormon moving company. I, I, I'm, I'm, I don't know much about baseball. Is that batting a 1,000? Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't ever intend to go anywhere where I don't make an impact on the kingdom of God. If her children are our crown, then what do you think it means in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 11? I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. You want to build a temple or a tower? You want to be the greatest thing in your family so that we all talk about uh, Rockefeller and how amazing he is and how his children haven't been? You, you want to be an amazing Kennedy who built a, a, a fortune that his kids can't waste? Or would you rather be a seed that gives your life for the advancement of all that would come after you and they multiply what you did 30, 60, 100 fold and they become great while you become small. See, I think that's what we should be aiming at. We're told in Thessalonians, hold on that no one takes your crown. We're told in Corinthians, not to compete for a crown that fades, but one that won't fade. In Revelation 12, a woman is pictured with a crown that has 12 stars. How many children did Israel have? 12. See, the whole idea is that our crowning achievement is children that go further than we do. If you're sitting here and you don't have children, I want to encourage you to think about that differently. I've watched Charlie and Joe become fathers and mothers to many people that Joe didn't give birth to. I'm one of them. You do not have to be a biological parent to be a spiritual parent. But most of the time, the person claiming they're your spiritual father didn't do anything more than a donor does in a biological sense. They were there the day that you got born again. Well, amen for that. So were a hundred other people. A father in the faith is one that would die for you to go further than him that would lay down that you climb over his head to the greatness God has called you to. That's what a father in the faith looks like. I'm fortunate to have those. I'm fortunate to be that. I'm suggesting that the target for this church is that every man and woman in this, this room be aiming at that. Our last verse, Psalm 105 and verse 8. Peyton, you can make your way up here. 
He remembers his covenant forever. Somebody say forever. The word he commanded for a thousand generations. I want you to get this. This word didn't go quite like I wanted. I've got much more to teach on the subject and no time to do it. So I want to bring it to an uncomfortable close. He remembers his covenant forever. Do you? Or do you have to be reminded three times a week? He remembers the promise he made. For a thousand generations. How long is your promise good for? Come on, man. You got those friends. They committed to be there on moving day, but you know if you don't remind them four times, there's no way they'll show up. Because their word's just not good for much. They mean well. They just don't do well. Are you that friend? Is that how you treat the Lord? Do you even remember what you promised him three months ago at this altar? Do you even remember it? Because he does. You ever committed to something and only later looked at the actual stipulations? Of course you have. Anybody in here with a credit card, you've done it. Got a cash advance and found out that 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 immediately jumped 18%. On your no interest credit card. How'd that work? You didn't read the fine print. Any program. You clicked on the Facebook acceptance. Then found out that they're listening to what you do in your bedroom. Wow. You know God's not trying to catch you with fine print. He put it in the bold print. Something's supposed to be hidden in your heart. He will never forget what you've promised to him. Or the promises he made to you. Do you forget them? There are men sitting in this room that have promised well to the Lord and delivered poorly. There are women sitting in this room that have made commitments to Him that they didn't remember an hour after they made the commitment. Don't we have to cure that if we want to hit what God is aiming at? I want to leave you with the awesome thought that if we allow the Lord to anoint us, Literally, what we do in the next 10 years could shape the world for the next 100. Of course, the other is true too. What you don't take seriously over the next 10 years. Why am I saying 10 years? If we have 60 of them that are under 10, some of them are 1, some of them are 9. Over the next 10 years, they'll all be approaching teenage and adult years. What you invest in them right now People invited me over for roast. Gave me a safe place to go read a Bible, to ask questions. And you're sitting here because of it. You have no idea what your investment now can produce in 10 short years. And God is aiming at a thousand generations. If I had time to tell you, He's spoken to me about an area of the world. He's told me that it will take more than a hundred families coming from us but that I would live to see sons from every corner of the earth come back to me and I'd be as proud of them as a bride is of her ornaments on her wedding day. A question is asked in the chapter, can we take plunder from the fierce? Two verses later, God says, yes, we will take captives from the fierce.
I know what he's aiming at, and it's going to come from you. It is your sons. It is your daughters. And they are going to be better than you, but it requires your investment right now. We're going to pray. At an hour and 23 minutes, we're going to do whatever you need to do with the Lord. Because your progenitry literally depends on it. And you can succeed. He wants you to succeed. Would you stand to your feet? What a treasure we have been given. Some of you have already raised your kids. And you have mixed feelings about that. Get rid of all guilt and shame. You are wherever you are. It's not too late to help the others raise theirs. Now is a time. Jesus, we are asking that as our children are being born, you would aim us rightly. Lord, that you would help us remember your word to our families, your promises to us, and more than that, what we have covenanted to you. Our children belong to you, Lord. We say it well. We want to live it well. Lord, would you come and move in this place? We want to raise our banners high at your throne. We want to deliver for you a thousand generations. In the name of Jesus, we make our life an offering for that purpose.